Okay, so before we start the show, I want to ask you all a favor. We're going to do a new segment on the podcast that we plan on launching in the next couple weeks, and it involves you, our beloved listeners and community. It's called I Plucked Up. All you need to do is send me a voice memo or recording of your most recent or biggest pluck up and how you got out of it or what you learned from it. It can be serious or funny. It can be from yesterday or from sometime in your past. I'd really love to read some of your pluck ups on the show so that we can inspire others with your story, mindset, and twists and turns along the way. This is going to be really fun. So send your voice message on Anchor or email me at liz at lizbohannon.co. Links to join the segment are on our show notes. I am so excited to hear from you all. All right, now let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. If you like plucking up, can you please give us a little love by rating our podcast and leaving us a review on Apple Podcast? It'll encourage more people to tune in and join our community. Thank you. You're listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders about their pluck-ups and how they moved on and up to keep creating and building lives of purpose, passion, and impact, and inspiring others to do the same. I'm your host, Liz Bohannon. so excited about today's episode. You know, we have interviewed a handful of authors on the podcast, but none of them have written enormously successful fantasy novels that would go on to become New York Times bestsellers and also a soon-to-be major motion picture on Netflix. Today's guest, Saman Chiani, is the genius behind the school for good and evil. This is a book series that has sold more than 2.5 million copies and has been translated into 30 languages across a mere six continents. Apparently, it's kind of a big deal. Um, In addition to being a big deal and a wildly successful author, I can say I don't think I've ever laughed so hard in an episode because Saman is so honest about his pluck-ups. And he's an incredible storyteller, which, you know, is part of his job. But we talk about several pluck-ups, you know, like jobs that he got fired from. But I think the best part is Saman shares with us how his biggest pluck-up was kind of this whole season of life where, for lack of better, fancier words, he was just kind of a turd. And his unchecked ego led him to this massive and really embarrassing and hard to swallow creative failure. I mean, y'all, if you like brutal honesty and storytelling, this truly is as good as it gets you guys. So how's that for a teaser? Without further ado, here is my wild conversation with Simon. Oh my goodness, I am so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. 
So for those of our listeners who are not familiar with you or your work, can you give us just a kind of brief overview on where you are now? Maybe your version, if you will, of your quote unquote highlight reel. You know, I thought I was going to be a movie director. That was sort of my dream in life. I came out of um, college. I went to Harvard where you are sort of, you know, trained to be a success in whatever you do, you know? So I naturally went into the business world because that seemed like the easiest path to success. But secretly, I always wanted to be a movie director and um, got fired from my first few jobs after college. And then, Amazing. And like fired, fired, not like laid off, like legit no, fired. Thrown out for writing screenplays in the corner. Um, so then ultimately made it to film schools by, by hook or crook, you know, after realizing that the easy path wasn't for me, you know, or the well-tread path wasn't for me. And, um, you know, started my journey to become a movie director, went to film school, came out, got signed by an agent, you know, all those things had a hot movie that I had written and was going to direct that was going to shoot in London. I had moved there, worked on it for a couple of years. And then the financial crash happened mm. and um, the movie studio went bankrupt and I lost basically all the work I had put in for those past few years. Wow. Came back to New York, no money, like, you know, no security blanket, had bet everything on sort of like, you know, being a director. And um, that's when I sort of had the revelation of, well, what if I could take the stories that I want to do as movies and write them as books first, then potentially I could reach an audience and then maybe get at least a guaranteed way of getting a story out there. And so I wrote my first book, a story I'd had in mind for a while called The School for Good and Evil, which was um, sort of a big epic fantasy for teenagers and had so much fun doing it. It was the most fulfilling sort of creative experience I'd ever had because it was no interference. For the first time, I was able to, to present kind of an undiluted vision mm. and ultimately wrote six books. Um, <laughs> it, it turned out of nowhere, sort of turned into this like worldwide kind of success. You know, it's it's now in what, 30 languages, 110 countries. Over um, 2 that, million copies sold, I believe. Yeah. Something in that range. I'm sure at some point you lose count. Yeah. Well, I just <laughs> think like it just sort of took on its own life, you know. Um, and then Paul Feig is going to direct the movie for Netflix um, that I think starts shooting in, in March or April. So and now all I want to do is stay in the book world hmm. and, um, you know, sort of generate everything from this perch, you know, like there will be movies, hopefully I'll dabble here and there, but I think I just fell in love with the control. And so that's sort of become my career. It was, uh, from aspiring to be a movie director, sort of doing all the things you needed to do in order to do that. And ultimately ending up where I belonged, which was, you know, writing books. So can you take us a little bit back? Let's go as far back as you can remember. Hmm. When you think about, you know, this idea that you were you secretly wanted to be mm. a filmmaker, but you were on this track to, you know, go to Harvard and to mm -hmm. study business. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about that a little bit. Like, what's your earliest memory of having that thought of that maybe someday I'll make movies? And then why was it secret? I think there were two competing influences. One, and it's funny because if you look at my yearbook, because I, had, by the time I got into college, I'd given up on that dream in a lot of ways because I didn't mm. think it was practical. I think the two competing influences were who I was as a person. Like my dad nicknamed me America's storyteller when I was like six or seven because I couldn't 
ever talk about anything without turning it into a big inventive story. Like, where'd your lunchbox go? Where a pterodactyl took it? Where'd the pterodactyl <laughs> come from? You know what I mean? Like, everything was just like drama and stories all the time. That was my life, like reading books, telling stories. But I was also Indian, and Indian kids are either businessmen, doctors, lawyers, or some sort of profession. You are not yeah. movie directors or writers or whatever. So, I think that sort of fraction was in me from a very early age. So I was like the best student always. Like, like I always mm. had to be like the best in my class at everything. Like, you know, I always had to be number one. Like there was that pressure I had on myself, not necessarily from my parents, but just from kind of that cultural upbringing. At the same time, that storytelling gene was in me. Anytime like there was an opportunity to do something creative for an assignment, I did it and loved it, you know? And if you look at Back in my yearbook, I think what's fascinating is everyone kept saying, like, P.S., can't wait to see your first movie. You're going to be the next Spielberg, da-da-da. And I was like, it was such a surprise when I went back and looked at them because I don't remember ever talking about it. Interesting. But it must have just come out. It must have just been something that I talked about without even realizing it, you know? Because I'm sure at the time I was thinking to myself, I'm going to go to Harvard and major in business, you know, do whatever other Indian kids do. And by the time I got to college, I think in a lot of ways, I'd given up on the idea of that kind of career. But again, the unconscious sort of took over in that when I chose my major, I couldn't bring myself to major in economics or business. And at the very last minute, I switched to English because I thought, well, it doesn't matter because it's a liberal arts degree. No one really cares what you study in college. I'll still be able to go into banking or consulting you know, but at least I'll get to read books, right? Like, at least I'll get to read. So, you know, it just, it was always there, that sort of like, that inability to pull the trigger on the conventional path, Mm -hmm. even though I felt like that's what I had to do. You know, it was the same with just my coming out process. Like, I always thought I was going to stay in the closet. I was like, okay, that's it. Like, that's the way life is. Forever and ever. Yeah, because at the time, you know, things are different now, but back then you couldn't. Yeah. But then like, I, w- I just was sort of dragged out by my own unconscious. There came a day where one day I just said it. Like, I, I didn't even have any control over it. It just happened, you know? So, like, that, I think, has been the the magic weapon in my life w- is that against my own wishes and desires, whatever I am meant to be or do ends up finding its way out, you know? Hmm, that's so interesting. It's almost like I think our narrative that we have around who we are and our purpose and our passion can often kind of be this like cartoon cat and mouse, like your Mm. job is to catch it and to find Mm -hmm. it and to trap it and to exert power over it (laughs) and to wield it. And I feel like your story is one where the power dynamic is a little bit different, where it's like your true self, your vocation, your purpose, your passion was this kind of force that was like, even if you wanted to shape it in a different way, eventually kind of kept sneaking out and taking you in a different direction. You know, it's funny, like um, I have a a tennis coach who he's in his 70s now, but I've been playing with him my entire life. And he's just this little like Zen genius. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, one day, like, I was just having a bad day and being sort of, like, cranky or whatever. He just looked at me and he goes, just remember, power versus force, two different things. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy sh- that's life, right? That's all you need to survive life. They're two different things. Yeah. Force is you exerting will, and mm-hmm. power is intrinsic. It comes from within. And so what are you operating with? Like, when I'm writing sometimes, I almost ask myself, like, is this from a place of power or is this from a place of force? Mm. Power flows naturally and force is exerted, you know? 
One of the things that I love about your story is that it's pretty neat that your community, even in high school or your dad, saw something in you that you didn't maybe even see in yourself. Mm. And I think so often our narrative around other people's opinions of us is pretty negative. And Mm -hmm. and it's really about like trying not to think about other people's opinions and listening to your own true self and not caring about other people's judgments. And there's a lot of value to that. But then I think what we also lose in that mentality of just like, don't care what anybody else thinks, don't listen to anybody else, is what happens when people actually speak truth over us and like encourage us in a certain way. And I think that that is so interesting about your yearbook, that Mm. it was like clearly the people around you saw a gift and a natural like way of being in the world that you didn't necessarily even identify at the time that only like makes sense in hindsight. Absolutely. And I think sometimes we give up on things because they seem out of reach, you know, and I think there's a difference between listening too much to other people's opinions and looking for consensus. I think Mm, if there's a consensus about people's reactions to you or your work, then I think it's foolish to be like, oh, people don't know anything and sort of buck against the system, you know? And so, you know, it's. I think in my case, I'd given up, but everyone was like, no, no, do this. And you're like, okay, so you start to rethink it a little, you know, versus, you know, there are times where people might think they have a talent for something, And they don't. And they feel like, oh, if I just, you know, keep beating at the dead horse, somehow it'll happen. So I think, you know, you have to be realistic and sort of look at what it was. And I think in my case, there was always that drive that pushed me, even when I was ready to give up, that said, no, they're right. Give it a shot. You know. Mm, Yeah. So in that moment, do you identify as an entrepreneur or do you identify solely as an artist author? It's interesting because I, I think the reason I wanted to be a movie director so much was I grew up, my idol growing up for so many different reasons, but especially in the 90s was Madonna. Um, because Madonna had this work ethic that was so intense and also was so kind of like mastermindery of her own creativity. You know, mm. the ability to, to reinvent herself and create sort of like targeted reinventions and there would be phases and there was a system to everything. There was a very sort of scientific way to the way she managed her career at her heyday. And I also loved Walt Disney because I thought Disney had the same kind of schematic and system, both Walt Disney himself and the company. And so those were the two things I grew up with. And I thought with being a movie director, you could access both, you know, Mm. this idea of control. Both of them were hyper, hyper controlling figures and controlling of their creativity and the way it was presented to the world. Like I used to study marketing campaigns as a kid. I actually thought that like when I went into business, I wanted to do marketing campaigns for other people's creative work. Again, that creative impulse was so like strong that it was like, okay, if I go into business, maybe I can be an agent or maybe I can like market other people's work, you know? But I think I felt like whatever I did, I needed to have that kind of entrepreneurial side to it. I wanted to control whatever the material was. And so when I got into the book world, you know, in publishing, you don't have much control. Usually you, you know, they have control over the cover. They have control over everything, but I was lucky that the first book was a success. Mm. And from there, because I had come from the film world and the publishing world's a lot nicer and everyone is a little more docile, I was able to kind of slowly take more and more control (laughs) to the point where by the time we were doing book six, I was choosing the color of the thread binding and the books. (laughs) Like, I mean, and, you know, they all think of me as like pleasant to work with, but when it comes to like, 
micromanaging. I don't think there's anyone worse than me. And, and I think they're very aware of it. But I think now that the series is done, this one series and the movie's coming, all my dreams of being able to build sort of a bigger empire and like this kind of like bigger entrepreneurial vision all get to come true. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, like doing intersecting series, creating like a Marvel universe, branding it, like all these different things that like, I only thought I could get through the movie world are now going to hopefully happen naturally through the book world. So what I always think is that it was just meant to happen. Like as a kid and a teenager, I was always training both sides of my brain mm. and thinking both ways. And, you know, back then I sort of had egoistic kind of delusions of grandeur and lived in sort of this inferior, superior, narcissistic swing that I think most people in their 20s tend to live in. Now it's like, it just sort of, it's happening in that sort of power versus force way. It's no longer mm. force. It's just happening sort of as a natural progression. And I think I'm prepared for it versus a lot of authors who achieve success at 21 or 22 are not. Yeah. Know? Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about your identity as an author. Like at what point in your journey? So you went to business school and you kept trying to make it more creative, but then you studied, or no, I guess you didn't go to business school. You Never. went to Harvard thinking you would study business, mm -hmm. but you ended up studying English. That's when I got and fired from all my business jobs in those, <laughs> those few years after. <laughs> And then you have this experience in the film industry where you keep getting fired. At what point in your journey do you feel like, do you remember the first time you were like, I'm an author, I'm a writer, that's what I do? I think maybe, okay, so we sold the first book to Universal the day it came out and it was a big deal and I got hired to write the screenplay and I wrote the screenplay for it. I was flying high, the sequel to School for Good Evil was coming out, there was all this attention, a lot of worldwide press, they're like, oh, he's writing the movie, like it's gonna be, all this stuff. And then they fired me from the movie. So that was something, cause I was like, but this is my world. Yeah, like, did you like know you could get fired from that? I was shocked because first of all, my friend was one of the executives on the movie and I had told her, I said, listen, they're telling me like I should have X, Y, and Z in the contract because you will likely fire me when I'm done with this because you're going to try to get a bigger screenwriter. And she was like, that would never happen. We were friends. We went to high school together. She was never <laughs> what happened. I said, okay, great. So, you know, first lesson in Hollywood, everybody lies, including friends. And so I think it was, it was one of these things where, you know, I had had so much fun writing the books. And when I came back to write the screenplay and work in the film world, I just wasn't enjoying the people and things like mm. that. And also I felt like I didn't have as much control over that scripting process. And meanwhile, I was enjoying writing the sequels. And so already every time I went back to the book, I felt relief. Mm. Every time I had to work on the screenplay or talk to somebody on the phone, like a producer or something, I'd get anxious and nervous, you know? Mm. And so it was there. And I think finally when I got fired, I had like a, you know, kind of a crisis over it for like a few months thinking I had failed and all this mm. stuff. And how was I going to like make my breakaway into film and all this stuff from there? And I realized like, but you have the books. Mm. Sure. It's not like books will never reach the medium that that film does, you know, books like a hugely successful book is like 1 million people read it. And, um, you know, a successful movie is like a hundred million people, but you do get a much more kind of like controlled experience and it's you, it's, it's you on the page. It's, uh, you have a very intimate relationship with your audience in a way that you do not 
as a film director. Or, yeah, and your audience gives you so much more too, right? Where it's like, I've seen way more movies in my life than I've read books. But the role, I find that the role that books play in my life and my thinking, how I relate to the characters, oftentimes I've invested so much more in a book, right? I've spent so much more time with the characters and in that world and Mm -hmm. coming back to it night after night. It follows me throughout, you know, a micro season of my life versus being like, oh, that was like a Friday night. That it is interesting because the number is definitely smaller, but the depth in some way, it's just very different. It's a different relationship that you have with books and with film. But I think more fulfilling in a way. I always tell people, you know, who are looking to get into a creative industry, think about the career you want to have and somebody out there has it and make sure you're looking at Mm. their career and that it's what you want and that it would fulfill you. So I'll give you an example. There's a great novelist. I'll talk about him because he's a friend of mine (laughs) uh, named Patrick Ness who wrote Monster Calls. Um, He's written a bunch of books that have become movies and he's one of the best YA authors out there. And he's become quite hot in Hollywood as a screenwriter. Hmm. So he's been doing like huge epic projects. And that was kind of always what I thought would happen to me. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, I would look at his career and be like, that's exactly what I want. And now as we're friends and we go, you know, sort of like our careers progress, I realize it's the opposite of the career I want. I thought it was from a like frontal lobe point uh-huh. of view from yeah. a like, like, but it's not who I am. Yeah. Right. I'll never be the guy to be able to go and do adaptations of other people's work. Like I'll always be the one who wants to create my own little universe, even if no one reads about it. Even if a book is a complete flop and five people read it, I would rather do that than write a screenplay for an adaptation that 50 million people see. And it's just the way I'm built. I'm, I'm sort of an engineer of universes. But if you had told me like two years ago, would you take his career, switch bodies with him and take his career? I would have been like, absolutely. Yeah. But sometimes like, you are who you are for a reason. Yeah. And I think if you fight that, you end up in trouble. Yeah, it's almost like, it just sounds like in your story that you just, there was this irresistible pull and that you almost just like accidentally fell in love with book writing. And that it was like, you just kept trying so hard to do the movie thing and to, you know, go through the different doors and get there. Because it sounds like the beginning, the book still was a means to an end. 100%. Hundred percent. There's so much in our culture that like just tells us about like dreaming and dream big and vision your future. And I'm like all about big dreams and I'm all about envisioning your future. But one of the downsides to that I think we have to be careful about is the more time we spend dreaming, I think something becomes like an ideological idol. Sometimes even it's like it's not even reality anymore. And so we aren't getting really curious about like, no, what does it actually look like and feel like for people that are in it? And if I shadowed that person for a day, would I love that? Would I come to life? Because we dream about it so much that it becomes Mm -hmm. this like precious thing that we have. And sometimes I feel like that keeps us from the falling in love with a thing that we're actually doing and a willingness to be surprised and being like, oh my gosh, but this thing that I didn't even think was the thing. I'm like super into this. Like, this is really interesting. I'm naturally staying up. This is totally my journey. So maybe mm. I'm like putting this on you. No, but just no, like, no. I'm staying up until 3 a.m. and I can't stop thinking about this or working on this thing. But like, I'm not that, I don't care about business. I don't care about fashion. And like, really being surprised by the things that actually like ended up being the thing that brought me to life. Well, I think it's also that we fall in love with career paths in this very abstract way. Mm -hmm. So it'll be like, I want to be a director. I want to be a screenwriter, right? But that's not the way your soul is thinking. Your soul is Mm. thinking in a much more kind of like, 
creative, yeah, improvisatory, innate way, yeah. you know? So for me, it was always like, what kind of stuff was I writing? I was writing kind of transgressive, kind of mischievous, provocative stuff for adults. But then, of course, where's that going to have the most impact? Where's that kind of sense of humor and way of thinking going to have the most impact? Teenagers, right? So when I wrote The School for Geneva as a, a proposal for a book, I thought it was for adults. Mm, like I had written, I'd written an adult book because that's what I thought. I thought books are for adults, right? Yeah. And sure, Harry Potter was for kids, but I don't want to write for kids or teenagers. And then when I sent it to, you know, my agent, uh, I didn't really have an agent. So we went sort of directly to publishers and the editor who ultimately accepted it was like, this will be amazing for like nine to 13. And I was like, nine to 13. <laughs> She's like, it's way too sophisticated and like, there's way too many innuendos, but like, it's there. And I was just like, I had to like, be like, what? what? And then the more I sort of thought about it, I was like, of course, because that's the age where everything happens. That sort of like, you know, nine to 13 age group. That's where you become who you are. Hmm. You know. So I think everything is meant to happen for a reason, but I think you always have to look at what are your strengths? What are you good at? And again, what were your influences? For me, like my entire life was dictated by Madonna and Walt Disney. And so that's what I do for a living. Whenever anybody asks me like what I do for a living and they sort of like know me well, my friends, they're like, you have literally taken those two careers and put them together. Like you basically write naughty fairy tales. <laughs> like, like you write provocative fairy tales. That's what you do. Okay, so you've had this career. You were very humble in the beginning when I asked you about your highlight reel and gave us, you know, a little bit more of the journey. Mm. But you've written now this remarkably um, successful series. Mm. It's been translated into tons of languages. It's becoming a motion picture on Netflix. You went to Harvard. By the way, this was the first book that you wrote, you know, sold over two and a half million copies. You have been nominated for the Waterstone Prize for Children's Literature. You were on the Out 100 list. You received a $100,000 Sasha Grant and the Sun Valley Writers Fellowship. Okay, that's like very fancy and mm -hmm. very impressive and a great highlight reel. Mm -hmm. um, will you do us the honor of taking us a little bit behind the scenes from the highlight reel and take us back to a moment? This could be last week. This could be 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. A moment in your journey where that felt really far away, where you were struggling, where you felt like you made a really big mistake, that you were just like... That was a pluck up, and I'm not sure mm. if and how I'm going to come back from this. It was probably the, the most important thing that ever happened to me was with my film school thesis. So I think that's probably the story I would tell. Because up until that point, if you sort of look at my life, you know, in high school, I was like valedictorian and so much like better than everybody else at sort of the academic part of it. Went to Harvard. In Harvard, I was like, I graduated summa cum laude. I was like top of my major. Like I just had this like achievement addiction. Yeah. It was a little bit like this addiction to being number one. And a lot of people have that in life, but I think it comes out of a grave, deep, terrible narcissism and a giant ego mm. that is created by insecurity and inferiority and all the things that I grew up feeling. But to me, like it felt like a noble goal mm -hmm. to be chasing number one for everything. So then 
you know, I go into business, get fired for the first, you know, couple of things. But deep in my heart, you know, that's when I, I started pursuing the creative route and went to film school. And film school, again, the goal of number one came back. I was like, I'm going to graduate film school, the best kid in my class. I'm going to, you know, come out with the hot agent. I'm going to have a movie, all this stuff, right? To the expense of personal relationships. Mm. Uh, I felt like those were, you know, less important to me than being number one. And so the first year went great. I gra- like they give it a, a huge, like $25,000 fellowship to the best student in the class and they gave it to me. So I went into my second year, the hot shot. Yeah. You know, everything was on track. Yeah. And then I had to direct my thesis. And the first mistake started because I had written a script. It was a, a script about an Indian mother who takes revenge on her son's bully mm-hmm. by going to his house. She's trying to talk to him rationally and he kind of bullies her. Trump style and she ends up hitting him and it turns into basically like this very physical war between an Indian mother and a boy. It's exceedingly violent. She tries to drown him in a pool and at the end she leaves him there to die. And the son shows up being like, you're about to kill a kid. And she sort of like comes to it the last minute and saves him, you know? And um, I wrote it in my first year and you're allowed to put your scripts into a pool to give them away to other people to direct. And that sort of like thing that made me go into business back after college, that feeling that something was out of reach, like, oh, no one could direct this. This is so close to my heart, but like, I'll never be able to do this. So why don't I just put it into the pool? Just because like everyone knew of the script, it was something that everyone talked about. And so it was like kind of the Shangri-La thing. And so again, ego was like, let me put it in the pool and see how many people try to bid for it, right? So I put it in the pool. Everybody bid for it. Everyone wants to do it. So somebody got it because I thought I could never do it. It just is too expensive and too crazy. And um, the sort of rich kid in the class took it mm. um, and dedicated like a $50,000 budget to it and was starting to make it. And as soon as he started to make it, this like deep thing inside me of like, how could you give it away? Mm. That's your movie. There were many wrong turns on this story. Um, but the first one was that. To the point of like, I was trying, like I was supposed to help because I was a screenwriter, but I was also trying to sabotage it <laughs> at the same time. Cause I was trying to then, I wanted to make it for my thesis. I needed his to be bad. Yeah. So then I could do it myself later. Cause I couldn't have the faculty love his version and then go make mine after I'd given it to him. So I'm trying to sabotage the production. My best friend is working on it as the producer. Like I'm trying to get them to change the name of it. Cause I know I'm going to make it later. It was terrible like everyone was mad at me everyone hated me it was you know so your your attempts did not they were very evident to people around you oh okay super evident i was writing legal emails (laughs) telling me my uh, according to my lawyer because it's still my property i'm demanding a title change i'm 25 years old basically being like i intend for my version of this to qualify for the academy awards and the academy awards won't take a version that has a title of you know what i mean like you're talking that's like, deep. like that's deep. I am in my head. I have been anointed the future Spielberg of film school. So I am taking my role very seriously, you know, and, and sending, I'm sure I have these emails somewhere. My, please, my friend, please, is, please, <laughs> please. We need to get our hands on that for, we'll put those in the show notes. Oh, God, <laughs> so bad. So anyway, they make the movie. It's okay. It's all right. It's not great. It goes to a handful of film festivals and sort of, you know, dies a quiet death. And so I see my opportunity. You know, God always gives you 
the challenge. The What should have happened is it should have been really good. So then I would shut up and go away and make something else. But it wasn't good enough, you know? And so I saw my opportunity. I decided I'm going to make it and literally put every ounce, every dollar I have, every credit card. I mean, I was like, wow. I went into so much debt on this movie, trying to turn it into the biggest movie in the world. To the point of, I hired... Oh, this is so insane. I hired some crazy CGI firm <laughs> to do the title sequence because I thought like it needed this like huge, like $10,000 title sequence. I tried to get the firm that did like James Bond movies or something. It, it just was like super delusional, right? So I make the movie. I drive everybody on the cast insane. I basically was like a demon and a nightmare. And talk about some metaphors that happened. The week before the shoot, I got attacked by a pit bull. <laughs> And was in the ER for a night. I still have all the, the scars. So that, wow. like, I was attacked by the makeup artist Pitbull. Then two days later, I went to the dentist and he accidentally drilled a hole in my tongue. So I couldn't talk anymore. <laughs> so they had to repair that. I literally did not know that was a thing that could happen at the dentist. <laughs> so I couldn't talk. He sent me to a surgeon to immediately fix it. So then I remember talking to my grandmother and telling her everything that was going on because she was aware of like the pit bull and this. And she goes, sometimes you just need to hide your face and sit down <laughs> in the quiet. She goes, whatever you're doing in life is not working because she didn't know. She didn't have the detail. All she knew was the big, terrible things that were happening. And I just, you know, I was in the middle of rehearsals for the movie and doing, and we had hired a stunt coordinator and oh my God, all these things. So anyway, we make the movie. Everybody hates me. Everybody at film school hates me because I'm remaking a movie that was already made, you know, but I'm like, I am making Schindler's List, you know? Do you have any self-awareness in the moment? Like, are you like, this is ridiculous, everybody hates me? Or you're just like, this is going to be God's gift to the universe and I'm giving it what it deserves? I was so used to jealousy of other people was my drug growing up, Mm. you know, because I think I'd grown up. I was the only Indian at my school. Like there were a lot of, I was the only gay kid that I thought at my school, all these things. So I was, I used people's like kind of reactions to me as fuel, you know? And so, but this was a case where they were correct. Again, consensus. consensus. Always look for consensus. Yeah. Yeah. In high school and things like that, like it was jealousy and stuff, but it was different. It was like, it was isolated. It was restricted to certain people. This was like a universal disdain, you know? And so, I make the movie, I'm editing it. I'm like, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. But I was a little insecure because I think I could feel how much I was writing on this. And everything relies on this showcase at the end where you show it to the faculty and then they put it in the film festival. And depending on where they put in the film festival, you can tell how much they like it. You know, like the worst slot is Monday at 2 p.m. And the best slot is on the final night in something called Faculty Selects where they give all the prizes and then best film. So I was aiming for best film and was like confident I'd get it. Because, you know, at that point in my life, like, what else would I get, right? So I make the movie and then I have an editor and I'm second guessing the editor at everything. I'm trying to control every inch of the process. He's annoyed with me and everything like that. But we get to a cut that I think is actually really good, you know, that is pretty solid. And, um, you know, my advisor who'd been my big champion sort of like for the first couple of years, I decided to show it to him, to preview it to him before the faculty saw it at the judging thing, which you're not allowed to do. Okay. You're not allowed to show it to a judge beforehand. But 
he liked me. He was sort of renegade, you know, he was sort of like middle finger to the faculty, you know, like uh-huh. he was just like, show it to me, show it to me. And I'm like, oh yeah, well, well. So I show it to him and he watches it and he was always a little manic. He was always a little, I learned later that he had a serious, serious like cocaine problem. But at the time I didn't like, I was too young to sort of put these things sure. together. Yeah. And he was watching and he was a little manic and he was watching it and he was like, he goes, it's good. It's just slow. It's super slow. Like, it's just like, it needs to be half as long. Otherwise no one's going to watch it. And it was 18 minutes. And so I said, but that's the story. That's how it's got together. He's like, look, you're showing on Monday. You got to do something. This is so slow. No one's going to be able to sit through it. And I trusted him because he was the one who got me the like, really fought for me to be that $25,000 fellowship winner. Yeah, you know, he was yeah. like my champion. Yeah. And I thought he's going to be the one who argues with the faculty to make me best film, you know? So I go to my editor and I'm, I'm like, we got to make it half as long. We got to make it shorter. It's too slow. And my editor's like, who told you this? I said, you know, I explained it. He goes, he's wrong. And I'm like, he's not wrong. He's my teacher. He's on the judge. Like he, I totally see what he wants. He wants to start here. And he's like, listen, I'm not touching it because this is it. So I re-edited it myself (laughs) and I got it down. I took it away from the editor. I changed it. I cut it down to like nine and a half minutes, half as long, you know, gotten this manic thing. Over Uh, like the course of a weekend. Yeah. And then finished it right in time, showed it at the judging ceremony. And I, you get to sit in the back while they watch. And as I was watching it, it was the first time where I watched it. And I had taken a movie that was quite heartfelt and cool and kind of had all these emotional ups and downs. And it had become mean. It had become mm. short and dark and mean. It had become mm. the kind of spirit of the process. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I could see the faculty. I could feel it in the room. No one left. Mm. No one. It was just dark. It was the darkest moment I've ever had. It was like this thing of like, oh no, like how did this happen? You know, like whatever the $70,000 budget or however much it was down the drain in an instant. And they scheduled it for Monday at two o'clock. The first film to show at Monday at two o'clock, which means it was the worst film out of 80. And it was like, that was like the lowest moment. So like the faculty wouldn't even look me in the eye. Like how do you go from being like the best student to the worst? And what I finally did was I took the original cut and took it to this famous teacher there named Lenore DeCoven. She was one of the first female directors to actually direct in the DGA. And she was my directing the actors teacher. And we had gone to her house for a party. I said, can I show you something? And she goes, what do you want to show me? She was a little like hostile because I think she was still mad about the film because I think she envisioned something different. I said, I don't want to tell you. Let me just show you something. So I take her into her room and I just put it on and I show her the original cut and she watches it all the way through. And then she looks at me and she goes, how did this happen? How did you not show this? And I was like, and I told her the story, but she goes, I don't know how you went from this to that. And I think that losing complete trust in yourself, in the Mm. process and all the things you did to get there in sort of getting so wrapped up in your own ego that you almost like willingly destroyed your own work, you know, I think was the single defining moment of my life because ever since then I have done everything on earth to avoid every single one of those mistakes, Mm. you know, which is be generous with people, be good to the people you work with, honor the work that goes into a book or into anything into the actual work. So once it's done and you know, it's done, 
if somebody has a, a bad opinion of it, like trust the work you put into it, you know? And so I just think that was the biggest one. And I think without that, I think I would have gone on being a monster. Hmm. That was a, a humiliation of such magnitude that I think I changed fundamentally as a person after that. Wow. You like couldn't ignore it. It was so dramatic so and big. it was so big in the wrong direction that it almost created this just like benchmark to work from for like the rest of your life yeah i think even to the point of so i took the original version to film festivals and i must have showed that at over 100 film festivals and sometimes the laughter would shake the room like the audience reaction to that movie was massive but there were two scars one was i never got over that feeling in the judges room. So whatever the audience gave me never almost like n- never took away that thing. And the second thing is I never got the movie back fully to the original because of a lot of different things. Like I didn't have like his cut wasn't completely finished and mm. and like we hadn't finished the process of locking in. And yeah. so it almost feels like it never was exactly what it was meant to be. So yeah. it almost felt like the movie itself had scars in it, you know. Yeah. Like, was it kind of immediate that you were just like, this is it. I will live the rest of my life avoiding making those decisions so that I can avoid this end result and this feeling. Or did it take, like, were you more defensive and you tried to rationalize it in the beginning and it was kind of a process? Or did it feel pretty clear that it was just like, new life goal, avoid this? I think at that point, I was still too young and stupid to be able to process it in a really conscious way. But I think the scars would come up. So when mm. I was about to direct my first feature, I could feel myself when that sort of like manic sense of grandeur, like, oh, we're going to have like Tom Cruise play the lead. You know what I mean? Like that sort of like, you know, I could feel it like, oh, okay, here we go again. Like you're off the rails. You know, yeah. I started to sense it. You had some like more. muscle memory almost of like, I've yeah. been here. I've been here. I felt this feeling before and it didn't lead me to a great, place and it kind of triggers like a sense of like stop 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 we're gonna pause on that and also it has to happen again and again like unfortunately mistakes do not happen once and then so it happened again on the first book where my editor was like you know she was like it's too long you need to cut and i remember that memory Mm. was still there but like i overcut it again you know I i made a mistake where the first book is exactly as i want except for one page i took out which should be in there because I got sort of like overcooked cutting things. And luckily I was able to put it in sort of the bonus of the the second book so kids can still read it. But I think like you have to make the same mistake a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it will never happen again. Mm-hmm. Now, like I have ways to avoid it. So like my editor, if she ever suggests a big change at the last minute, within the last like month of getting something to publication, I will ask for at least a night or two to think about it. Yeah, I'll never make a decision in the moment, you know? Yep. Oh, that's so good. Manicness is definitely, you know, we talked about the difference between power and force. And I think for me, that sense of like manic, I have to do it and I have to do it now is a signal for me that it's like, it's force. It's not power. That it's like, if I can't confidently say that 24 hours from now, if you look at the same situation, you will think that you needed to do that thing that, you know, at one o'clock in the morning that night that's such a signal for me of like, you're not operating in a healthy space, like calm down, step back. I mean, I think, I think we, as people, some of us err on the side of 
running away from hard things and avoiding it. And then others of us, and this would be me, is I just run at things and I just <laughs> like same. hack them to death or fix them or yeah. change them in a very, my worst self. It's so compulsive that it's just like, I can't stop. Oh my God. I totally get it. It's like, to me, the worst thing anybody can ever do to me is ever send me a text being like, um, you know, I just like to be friends. It's the worst thing you can do because then all I want to do is like send you a one page essay explaining to you why you are such a terrible person and are going to die alone. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, but like, that's where you have to be like, no, we're going to take 24 hours. And then after 24 hours, you probably won't even reply to the text, but you know, it's that, it's that, you know, learning to, to hold yourself back and let your better angels actually tell you what you should be doing. My worst text is when someone's like, hey, I need to um, talk to you about something, but then like don't have time to talk to me about it for like two weeks. And And I'm just like, like, no, if you send me that text, I will literally show up on your door. Like we will have that that whole thing of like, don't go to bed while you're angry, my poor husband. I'm just like, oh, yeah, we're not going to bed because we are staying up all night (laughs) to figure this out. It's like... And nothing good happens after 11 o'clock. Like my brain, my rationale, my logic, it's just so bad. It it goes away. And yet at 1130, I'm like, no, the best time to solve this problem (laughs) is absolutely right now. Oh, it's so bad. I totally get it. Oh, man, that is so good. You know, of all of the amazing pluck ups that we've had on this show, this is a really interesting one because I don't know that I've ever heard somebody frame it. In that the value was in the what not to do. Because mm. I think so often, you know, we're we're more driven, I would say, in general by ideals, right? Like I see this person or this project or this like outcome and I'm going to work towards it. But it's a kind of interesting, powerful thought to think about having just the opposite of like, I see how yes. bad it can yes, go when yes, I yes. operate out of that space. And I'm going to be really motivated to like not not do, do it. That again. It's funny because um, it just happened yesterday where I, I joined a, a sort of like ritzy new tennis club this summer and they have this league and I've been playing every Sunday and I just thought it was arbitrary. Like they assign you matches and you go play. And it's super competitive, but like whatever, you play the matches and you go home. And I walked by this new part of the club I hadn't seen and there was this, this whole board with a ranking ladder where everybody is ranked and there's like the gold tier and the silver tier and the bronze tier. And I see my name there where it's lower than it should be and i'm looking at it and i'm like i should be number one how do how many matches do i have to win to be number one and i could feel it starting again it's like (laughs) it's like okay here we go and i'm like i literally was like you know what like i thought about it and i'm like i'm just not gonna play this league like now that i've seen the board i need to take myself out of it for a little bit Hmm. we're not gonna dedicate a significant portion of my energy and my life to being number one in this league because I can that part of me will always be there you know yeah it will always be there but like you learn to let the dragon sleep well there you go (laughs) well what a treat my face hurts I laughed so hard I'm so tickled. I feel uh, so grateful just for that really interesting perspective and framing of that story. And just for your honesty and generosity and taking us a little bit behind the scenes and behind the highlight reel. It was like therapy. (laughs) It was good to actually. I've never told this whole story full out. So this was great. Oh, my gosh. My face kind of hurts from laughing so much. That was just a wild ride that we went on together. 
think what I hope, if you're listening to this, that you feel is this, I hope you feel encouraged and emboldened towards radical honesty. Whatever that looks like for you about evaluating yourself, your life, maybe the harder parts of your personality or who you are. I hope that you feel encouraged and inspired and a little bit less alone, knowing that we are all on this wild journey of becoming more of who we were created to be together. I'd like to thank my amazing producers at Human Group Media for helping put this show together. For updates and announcements about the show, you can visit lizbohannon.co or follow me on Instagram at lizbohannon or sincerelyhuman on Instagram and Twitter. All right, that's all, you guys. I'll catch you in the next episode. Until then, stay plucky. Stay plucky.